Well, open up in your Bibles to the book of Titus. And that is, if, you're, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's black Bibles in the pews right there in front of you. And that is page 998. <clears throat> we are continuing the series of Titus this morning. Uh, we started it two messages ago. Kyle started this off, and Caleb was last week. And <clears throat> the central message of that, of the whole book, is for the sake of the faith. And that's what we're going to continue through today. We're going to just keep adding on to more and more of what we have learned the week before. Because the thing about this book is it builds and it builds and it builds. And Paul never leaves us in this book without the message of why it's important what he's saying. If you've been following the news at all, if you've watched YouTube, if you've turned on Facebook, you have seen the news on the hurricane, right? Hurricane Irma. It's really big news right now. And it's expected to make landfall this afternoon, I believe, if not already. And it's taken a different course, and it's been all over the news. And like any big story, the the news is for sure going to run with it, and they're going to make huge news out of little things sometimes. But there's one story in particular that I heard this week. I'm a little bit obsessed with this. I, I, I love, I don't love these storms, I guess. I don't love them because they're so devastating, but I... I think it's amazing to see the power that's possible. But one of the things that amazed me this week as I was watching the news is a certain news station, and I won't mention the name, they distorted the truth about what was happening, and they said, now Hurricane Irma is a Category 6. Well, Category 6 hurricane isn't possible on the scale of the hurricanes, if you know anything about that. There's only one through five. Doesn't go beyond five. They just made something up. They were distorting the truth about what was going on. Why would they do that? Well, they know that in a situation where people are extremely frightened and concerned and worried, and the fears are among them, and they're wondering what they're going to do, how their families are going to survive, well, they're going to run to that web page and they're going to click on that link, or they're going to go to the Facebook and they're going to like the page just so that company or that news station can get just a little bit more ahead and benefit in some way. Just because they want to gain by someone else's, through someone else's pain. But the church that we're learning through this book of Titus, it operates in a very different way. And we're right in the middle of this series on Titus, and I'm going to try to relate to things that we heard before, to, to what I'm going to talk about today because it doesn't come at us in individual chunks. It comes at us as, as a, in a flow of, of Paul's thought through this letter. <clears throat> and he's been instructing his protege, Titus, whom the letter is entitled to. It's entitled to Titus. That's why it's, the name of the book is Titus. And he's, he's instructing them how to run a church, how to run churches, actually. He's trying to instruct him how to run a church on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, which sounds luxurious, doesn't it? It does to me. But this church, or these churches, they're experiencing a hurricane in their own right. Now, I'm going to get to all the details as we go through this. But there were greedy men. They were taking advantage of the situation right there in Crete. And they were distorting truth. They were, they were not uh, teaching the message of the gospel, which Paul went there, 
painfully through many trials and tribulations to bring. He brought the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people, but there were people ahead of him, or maybe at the same time, who had existed around the same time he was there, they were taking advantage. They were, they were twisting the truth for greedy gain, we're, we're going to read about in this book. But Paul is instructing Titus how to rebuke, to correct, to teach and preach and recruit other preachers, other elders, to bring about the, the faith that this book is talking about for us to have. This section is talking about these empty talkers and deceivers and how to correct them using God's word through faithful teaching and how to, how to choose well-qualified men as, as elders with the qualities that we learned about last week in the section right before this. Who can, who can hold on, hold on to this, this firmness of faith and, and the doctrine of God and rebuke those who contradict it for the sake of the faith. And so the epicenter of this section today is that the gospel-centered rebuke, which is what we're dealing with today, in the correction and the teaching and the reproof, which is rebuke, that the gospel-centered rebuke is God's grace, that we may be sound in faith and good works. So read with me along in Titus chapter 1. And for context, I'm going to start in verse 9, but that's not, I'm not going to preach on verse 9. I'm only preaching verses 10 through 16, but I'm going to start at 9. So he says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families for teach, by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So the first thing we're going to see right here is we break this down into sections, and some of these sections don't, kind of, don't, don't come one after another. They do, they do kind of mix in a little bit, so it's hard to say we're going to focus on this section and then this section. Um, but I'll try to help keep us straight as we go through this. But the first thing we see here is that the gospel-centered rebuke is God's grace. In this short book, which you can look at right in front of you on two pages, is very short. I encourage you, every one of you, to read it, the whole thing, straight through. It'll take you less time to read this book than it does to put a post on Facebook. Do it. It will benefit you severely. <laughs> read all the way through it. But this is written by the Apostle Paul to Titus, as I've said. And they have worked together before this on different things, planting different churches. Titus worked with Paul in carrying messages and letters and money. He went with Jerusalem, or went, went to Jerusalem with Paul. So they've worked together for a long time. They know each other very well. He's gone on many journeys with him. 
But now we see Paul is talking to Titus, and he's in Crete. And Paul's not in Titus. He's someplace else now. Now, what, what is Crete? Where is this place? Okay, this is in the Mediterranean. It's part of Greece. It's just south of the mainland there. And this is an interesting place. It has a very colorful history. I'm not an expert on this area, but it's an interesting place to me, and I've done a little research. But apparently it had some very lazy people. And it was a culmination of a lot of cultures. They had a lot of uh, wars. Uh, there's been a lot of discoveries there lately. There's a lot of archaeological dig sites. And, you know, who wouldn't want to go to a beach in Greece, you know, in, in the Mediterranean? So it attracted a lot of people who enjoyed lazing around on the Mediterranean beach all day, apparently. And that sounds nice, but they, like, they had struggles in, on this island, and they were planting churches there. They thought it was prime missional land to plant churches somehow, however this worked out. But it had vast difficulty, and we can see this in this section here. And this is exactly why earlier in the last section, Paul was laying out these qualifications of these, of these elders and why it's important for these elders to have these specific qualities and why these specific qualities have to do with what's going to happen on the island of Crete is that Paul says, Titus, you're going to be dealing with some extremely difficult people. These can't be weak men. Now, somewhere on this island, there's got to be some men qualified. So we know that not 100% of the people on this island were corrupt because Paul says, find these guys. They're here somewhere, and they're going to be your guys. They're going to be help you. And he's, what's he say? Re- referring to verse 9, previous section, he says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So the elders need these qualifications that are mentioned, and then they need to be able to then hold on to this truth that they're going to be teaching. That's where their buoy is, in the middle of this storm that they're experiencing. They've got to hold on to this thing, because they know that where they go, they could lose it very easily. So our section today is dealing with the case study. This is the application of the instruction that Paul is kind of filtering in, okay? He's dealing with this because the people of that area, they were not extremely on guard against corruption. They were not, deal- they were not extremely hesitant of taking um, possibly nice-sounding arguments and running with it, it sounds like. I'm kind of reading between the lines here a little bit, but what's happening here is we have um, what they call the circumcision party, which is, if you've never heard that term before, it's, it's Jewish Christians. It's Christians who had supposedly converted, or Jews had supposedly converted to Christianity, but as Christianity began to develop, and move in, into, you know, away from Jerusalem and, and into the rest of the, the countries, they started filtering in old myths and, and Jewish teachings that were required to be a part of Christian life. And, and Paul had been refuting these guys time and time again, all throughout, you see this all throughout the book of Acts and, and of the letters, that these guys were enemies almost of Paul. I mean, he was dealing with them time and time again. And in verse 10, you see where he says, these guys, they were empty talkers and they were deceivers. 
And they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. These guys were, these were teaching something contrary to Paul. They were teaching something contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul was preaching. So it wasn't just Paul and his idea. Because as we heard earlier on, or last two weeks ago, that this message that Paul is, is preaching, back in verse 3, was at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which he had been entrusted by the command of God. So this wasn't Paul's idea. Paul wasn't just strumming these ideas up in his head and receiving some you know, imaginary word from the Lord. Like He was actually entrusted by the command of Jesus to preach and teach. And so he knew that anything contrary to what he had received from the Lord was contrary to Christ. And that is what he is up against here with these guys. They are teaching some component of a of a prosperity gospel, perhaps. Because it says they're teaching for shameful gain. They're gaining something. Not sure exactly what that is. Could have been power. Could have been fame. Who knows? But they were receiving something in return for, you know, for the preaching that they had. And that's not scriptural based at all. We can look back time and time again. We can look back and see the, the preaching of the word is a servant-hearted giving of oneself the way Christ modeled to his apostles, and that was carried on. Whatever they were teaching, it was, it was empty, it says. It says it was as empty. It had, real, it had no real content to it, apparently. And it was leading people away from the truth. It was leading them nowhere. It was upsetting whole families, it says here. It was like the way I feel about cotton candy. I think cotton candy looks really good every time I see it there in the, at the, you know, the carnival. I see it, and I think, man, I, w- I wish I liked this stuff. But when I eat it, you know, it's large, it's substantial, it looks good. And as soon as you take a bite, it's like, what? it's gone. It's, it was sweet for just a moment, and then it's gone. If you take another bite, it's gone. And it just evaporates in your mouth. The more you eat the more like this distorted, sweet, weird, bad aftertaste gets in your mouth and it, and it just goes away to nothing. And there's no, nothing substantial to it whatsoever. If you eat too much of it, it's going to upset your stomach. It's going to upset your body. There's no nutritional content to it at all. It tastes kind of good, feels kind of good for a minute. might leave you wanting more. You leave the, the carnival and you're going to want to go back and get more, but it's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to satisfy you. going to make you gluttonous, like these lazy Cretans might have been, but it's contrary to real substantial nutritional food, right? So I think that's kind of what we're dealing, you know, we're thinking think about that here, is that these guys, they were teaching something that, that, that looked substantial, it sounded really good, it looked fancy, but as soon as they received it, they were, they were not fulfilled, they were not satisfied. They were more empty inside, left them with this bitter taste in their mouth. So Paul says in verse 11, they must be silenced. Man, that sounds harsh. They must be silenced. Titus had a tough job. Do not envy this guy. I was listening to a Southern Baptist preacher from Tennessee this week. I can't think of his name. 
I was texting to John to see if he knew where he's from because he's down in his neck of the woods. And this guy, he was one of these good old boys. I love listening to him. He had a deep South accent. And he just called Titus a street smart guy. And he knew what he was doing on the streets. And this was a tough place. It was strategic, I think, for Paul to leave Titus in an island like this that was a tough place to be. He needed to know how to deal with these wily Jews and these people who were possibly buying, buying into the, this prosperity gospel and to shut them up. That's what he was there to do. He was there to rebuke them, to teach sound doctrines, and, because they need to be silenced. And I'm not really sure. We don't know how this all exactly plays out. We don't have evidence of that. But I would like to think that these guys that were teaching this contrary gospel, they became part of the people that they were ministering to. So Paul says, yeah, get out there and you shut them up. But let's not just completely, you know, kick them off the island. Let's preach to them too. But part of that is going to be shutting them up, shutting them down, teaching them, correcting them, reproving them, rebuking them, so that they understand the folly that they're dealing with here and the people that they're leading astray. Either case, however this worked out, Paul was calling Titus to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. As an elder, this was his anchor, this was his buoy that he had to hold on to. And then we move on in verse 12, where we see Paul making a strange comment here about this Cretan prophet. Epimenemes was his name. I think I'm saying his name right. But he says, Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. It's kind of a strange comment, don't you think? And I always would read this and not quite know exactly what to think of it. But, as I've said, Crete was known as a place of moral decadence. A lot like maybe New Orleans. I've been there a few times, and you can't leave New Orleans without eating a whole lot of food. It's very good down there. And a lot of immoral people, I've met them too. And unjust rulers, and I've met them too. I have some stories I can tell at another time about that. So they were there ministering to these people, and this was especially a challenge But again, Paul says to rebuke them in order to correct them, to not just shut them up, but to bring them back to truth where they should be. Maybe these guys could be allies. Maybe they could help us. Maybe they're not that far off. But the elders needed to be men of fortitude and tenacity to deal with these difficult people, these difficult guys to teach these sound doctrines, to lead others away from that worthless selfishness that they're dealing with here, and to teach the truth of God's Word. These are men who are courageous, men who who could face, you know, these idle talkers and people who might talk down to them and maybe make fun of them in public places. I don't know. But look what it says there in 13. He says, the end of 13, he says, that they may be sound in the faith. That's significant, I think, because he's not just saying, rebuke them, shut them up, we don't want to hear from these guys again, but they may be sound in the faith. In the faith. 
You guys, God's grace is a huge, huge thing that we don't have time to completely deal with here today. Um, but this is God's grace, that he would send Paul to this island somehow, and Paul would um, choose Titus among all of his guys to stay back and not go on to the next luxurious Mediterranean island with him, but that he would stay there and that he would be qualified to then choose qualified men who could teach and, and, and do all these things and face these difficult people for the sake of the faith so that these people might be sound in faith. That is God's grace, people, that he would not leave these folks alone, not leave them to these empty talkers and deceivers. That is God's grace that he would bring his gospel message to a people who turned away from the truth and wanted more cotton candy. They were just eating it up. Not condemning them permanently. They're going to clash hard. They're going to battle in words. Um, but these harsh words, this, this rebuke, is not like just this you know, sledgehammer coming down. Boom! It's not that. It's not like we're just going to come down hard and shut you up. That's not what the rebuke is meant to be. This, this word rebuke, um, man, it has such a negative connotation, doesn't it? We don't want to be rebuked. I don't want to be rebuked. I don't want to be told I'm doing anything wrong. Do you? I don't. But I hope guys who love me, my wife, you know, my family, they will point out inconsistency in my character uh, and in my actions. And then they would say, Travis, uh, you say you're over here where God is, but you're over here. I don't get that. What's going on? They may not know exactly what's happening to me. They may not know why I'm over here. My heart's over here, but I say I'm over here. What's happening? Well, then that gives me the opportunity. They say, what's going on? You know, why are you acting this way? Well, that's the beginning of a rebuke. And it's not just the person who's addressing me. It happens to be the Holy Spirit that's going to work through my conscience in that situation. It's going to work out through that, the conversation with these people that we're having. And that's a, that is a gracious thing where God is using his church. He's using his people. He's using you guys to bring about the sanctification that he wants in us. That's why this is grace. That's why I want to peel away the layers of this onion that we call rebuke that we don't like. And I want us to see what it is. I want us to see that the rebuke is a good thing. And it doesn't necessarily feel so good at the moment. Um, But neither does... Anything that's ultimately good for us doesn't feel good in the beginning, does it? It doesn't feel good to turn away from that cotton candy that you want so bad and eat a carrot. That doesn't feel too good. But it's good for us. And that's why it's important to stay on course in the midst of these storms. That's why it's important and so crucial to hold, word, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that we can teach others and rebuke those who contradict it. Us, the church. Or, to, contradict, or, to, or to, to rebuke those who contradict it. Which is purely a means of grace. So, 
because this gospel sin rebuke is God's grace, it makes us sound in the faith. That's the next thing we see here is that we're going to move right into the next point, which is that the gospel-centered rebuke keeps us sound in the faith. And so moving on in the text here, we see in verse 13 and 14, that right after he quotes this um, lazy Cretan guy, he says, This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. Now, it's important, like I was saying earlier, to remember that the rebuke is not a form of torture. It's not cruelty. It's not negative, necessarily. It feels hurtful. It doesn't feel too good. And it's not going to feel good coming from either side. It's not going to feel good coming from the giver or the receiver at first. And notice, uh, again, what he says there in 13. He says that they may be sound in the faith. I think I got ahead of myself earlier, and I already kind of covered this, but the soundness of faith is the, is the important topic here. And it's the same faith that Jesus taught back in the, in the Gospels. And it's the same faith that we see all the New Testament writers talking about. It's this deep conviction of this belief that we have in God that is carried out through the merit that we have based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the faith that he's referring to. It's not just some like, oh, I have faith that, you know, it's going you know, to be a blue, blue sky outside today, and I'm not going to have the rain when everyone down south is flooding. Like That's not the kind of faith he's talking about here. This is real, true, biblical, life-living-out faith, belief in God that he's talking about here, based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this rebuke is meant to be positive. It's meant to be uh, corrective. It's meant to bring light upon a dark situation. It's meant to preserve us, ultimately. It's to bring, you know, expose light into a situation. And it's the epicenter of the gospel, if we think about it. It's, it's the rebuke that causes us to see our need for Christ and to, and to turn us away and cause us to see what it is that we're missing and why you know, why we're leaning to one direction and not towards God? Why are we depending on ourselves and not towards God and ourselves? Why are we depending on ourselves? Why are we depending on other things? And it's through that time and time and time again, maybe it's easier for some than others, that we're humbled, okay, and we're, and we're broken. And that thing that felt so bad at first, that rebuke, that preaching, that teaching, that rubbed us the wrong way, but man... We go, that gospel, that's, that's something else that I, I can't do. I can't, I can't make that in myself. That, that, that gospel is there to, it's given to me. But I need to hear that rebuke and I need to hear people, other, you know, brothers and sisters, as we sit and we talk and we, and we hear sermons and we, you know, we listen to Christian radio or whatever it is we do, we are then humbled and then we are changed and then our behaviors become right with God, with what he's saying here in this passage that we learned right before, uh, you know, the qualifications of elders. That is a transformation of the gospel that we see happening right before our very eyes. So this thing that seems so harsh is not harsh. It does not feel good, but it's meant to correct you and, re- and turn you towards Christ. 
where you're meant to be, where we're all meant to be. Every single one of us are meant to be over there with Christ. The rebuke is God's primary means of using us, people, our finite, you know, we're fallible, we're sinful, but it's, it's God's primary means of, of using us to bring about faith of other people as we hold firm onto this trustworthy word as taught, the word that was given to us. And then when we find ourselves getting off center, we're, we're rebuked and we're come, we bring right back. Even, even teachers and preachers, when they're rebuked by others, and then they can continue to steer everyone towards the truth. And when one person catches on to this, or multiple people catch on to this, or entire church catches on to this, and they hold firm onto this word of God in such a way that their conviction leads them to a life that is lived as God's word, as the primary source and filter of everything that they do, okay? And all who see that person and the way they're living, that very thing leads other people towards God, towards Christ, and towards this gospel, all because of the rebuke, all because of the preaching and the teaching that they heard initially. And then others begin seeing God through the exact same eyes and the exact same word, and they're, they're, they're then filtered, their, their, their thoughts and their motives and their actions and their lives are then filtered through the exact same word, which leads more people that way and more people that way. And that's what we want to see as a church. That's what we want to see as God's people. And then those people, because again, we are finite, limited, sinful people, even in that lifestyle, confronted when those people, when I'm, con- not just those people, when I'm confronted, that I'm, I'm in error and I'm in sin, and that the sin doesn't match up to what I've said that I believe, then it's, it's good that I act in a way, not just act, but, you know, begin in that, that faith again, moving back towards God's center of his gospel, Okay? I hope that definition, that explanation didn't royally confuse you because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to illustrate this a little bit better. As I was saying, God uses us. He uses people. We're not just useless tools. We're not just useless um, instruments. God uses people. And let me illustrate it like this. Imagine an artist's empty canvas and his paintbrushes and his oils next to him and all those other, you know, useful instruments of painting. And think about the fact that the oil paints in the tubes, they, they're not just going to jump out of those tubes and squiggle their way up to the canvas and turn into something beautiful. It takes time for the artist to choose the right brush, to soften those bristles, and they have to be used over and over again, actually, for them to become adequately, properly prepared, in my experience, anyway. And he mixes the color on his palette, and he adds it to his canvas. And that's not quite right, so he adds a little bit more color. And he paints the ground, the color it needs to be, and he paints the sky, the color it needs to be. And he adds the hills, and he adds the valleys, he adds the rivers and the streams, and adds in the details. And it takes time. 
And you might realize, I've got to do a little bit more work over here. I might actually need to erase this area over here and put a little paint thinner and remove some of that stuff there. But over time and process of using those instruments, he's painting this amazing, beautiful picture that we can't see because we're part of it. Part of that painting that God is painting right now. And I think that's an amazing illustration, I hope, to help us see that we're not these useless instruments, that God is actually using us, softening us, and turning us into useful instruments for his glory. Doesn't that sound good to you? That sounds good to me. I want to be useful. I want to be transformed by God's gracious word so that I might be sound in my faith in order that I might know his word better, that I might be transformed, that you might be transformed, that more people might be transformed, not for our glory, but for for his, to bring others to the soundness of faith. And it's good. And this is the good works that we're going to see next in this passage, is that this a rebuke is God's grace that keeps us sound in faith, and it's this soundness that is, is necessary to make us fit for good works, which is the third point of this passage, is that we need to be, uh, that the gospel center rebuke makes us fit for good works. We're going to deal a little bit about good works here. So, this entire book of Titus was, kind of has this one central thrust that it makes us fit for good works for the sake of our faith. I'm kind of adding on to the title of the whole sermon series, but I think it also, you know, I think not only does it, is it for the sake of the faith, but it also makes us fit for good works for the sake of our faith. And that's a summary statement. Paul repeats it over and over and over again. That's why I encourage you in the beginning, you go back and read this book and notice how many times Paul mentions the word good works, that statement good works, and in various ways. And think about why he's saying this. Why is that this repeated you know, thread through, through, through the garment of this book? Because we see at the end right here on verse 16, we see, we see him say, after he's talked about the, the Cretan lazy Cretan guy and not devoting themselves to the Jewish myths, down at the bottom he says, they profess to know God. I think he's actually talking about the circumcision party here, but they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good works. This word, um, works, literally means what you are about, what you do with your time, how you spend your time, Uh, How we occupy ourselves, it's not necessarily what you do for a living or, you know, the good things that you do. It's who you are, it's what you build your life on, and more. I think that's a good summary statement of what this really is saying. And because the fact is, we're always doing something. We're never not doing something. We could be doing any number of things. We could be Reading, we could be playing with our kids, watching TV. We could be sleeping, actually. We could be, you know, playing at the park. We could be at school. We could be paying our bills. We could be doing a, our favorite hobby. Whatever that is, we are doing something. So I think that's why 
it's, what, it's whatever we do that fills our life, okay? So it's important to know that this, this, this word works. That's why it's in here. I think he's, he's, he's emphasizing on the fact that this thing that we do, that we build our life on, is, the, is so important for us to realize. So, why is the word, why is works so important in this book? And why... Why make, why make it something that he keeps coming back to? That we have to be good, you know, we have to have these good works. Or they're unfit for good works. I want you to think about that question. And let it kind of linger and stew in your mind for a minute. But before that, I want to back up one verse. Sorry to back up on you guys. And I want to think first about another verse and another statement that he makes. It's also, also kind of confusing. He says... Verse 15, he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Don't let this statement confuse you too much. Don't spend a whole lot of time trying to understand what does the pure mean, who are the pure, who are the defiled here. I, I think it simply means that, <clears throat> sorry, that it is, it is the, those who are purified in Christ Jesus versus those who are not. And let me get into this a little bit more. So those who are purified in Christ Jesus, their works belong to him. Okay? Those who are not part of Jesus, those who are not redeemed, not saved, not committed to him, those works are about their sinful flesh. I know earlier I was going this way with God and this way with not God. I'm getting backwards here. So... What I mean is that those who are the pure are the ones who have committed to Christ Jesus, and he's the one who makes their, good, their works good. It's not us, okay? Let me try to make this very clear. So where do you all sit on this spectrum? I know many of you, but I don't know others of you, and so I'm just asking you this question. Where do you sit on this spectrum of this pure versus defiled? Are you claiming Christ as the proprietor of your soul, the one who has forgiven you, has redeemed you, has renewed your state before God, and thus now your acts, okay, so actually let me back up, your, your sins are redeemed, they're forgiven, they're ignored, they're important, I mean not ignored, they're important, God, God does judge us for our sin, that's not a good thing, but what I'm saying is that our, our life is restored and redeemed. And so that means the acts that we, that, that we live out before us, however imperfect they may feel, Christ is using them for his goodness and his purposes. Okay? And that's how they can be, can be considered good. Versus, have you not surrendered to God? Does he still seem to be a mystery to you? Have you ignored that call that you've heard time and time again? Does it... Does it not make a whole lot of sense? Are you, are, you, or are, you, are you suppressing it? Are you not allowing God to kind of come deeper in there? Are you still worrying about how you're going to sneak into heaven after all the things you've messed up in your life or the mistakes that you've made? Where are you placing your trust? In yourself and what you can accomplish or in God? And I, I, I want to call you right where you sit right now. And I want to say, look, there's nothing more you can do, nothing more you can say, nothing more you can accomplish to make yourself right 
with God for him to receive you any more, any better. You can't get there because God knows it already. He knows the depth of the, the pain and the suffering and the hurt that people deal with. And he knows us all individually. And he takes us right there where we are in that moment. And he says, I, I can use this. There's something there. You're useful to me. And he, and little by little, restores you back to that person that he intends for you to be. And we're not going to get there in this life. We're not going to see the perfection of that painting in this life. But hold on, because we will. He's never far, and he's always searching. And he's always ready to forgive and accept and give the eternal grace that you're looking for. And here's what's so amazing. He says later on in verse 3, 7, chapter 3, verse 7. Actually, I'm going to back up and say more. He says, He says so many good things here. But he says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the purpose of eternal life, according to the hope of eternal life. The eternal life in Christ Jesus with God forever is what God wants for each and every single one of us. Doesn't that sound good? I, so I back up again to verse 15. He says, both their minds and their consciences are defiled. I, and so that means that the works that these, you know, that the person who has not put their faith in Christ, their works are defiled. They have no ability to do good works, no matter how good they might seem. Even Charles Spurgeon said, they're only capable, an unbelieving person, they're only capable of what he calls varnished sin. And I love that definition because it looks good on the outside like that cotton candy. But it's empty. It will not satisfy. It will not ultimately be good. So, back to that question I asked a little bit ago. Why are the good works that Paul's, ref- Paul's referring to so many times in this book so important? And it's because our lives are only one of two things. We only look at this as one of two ways. Our life is either the works that we do, what we make ourselves about, are about the detestable, unfit, selfish, vile emptiness, which is achieved through self-centeredness and lack of faith in God. Now, if that sounds harsh, I wasn't my idea, so I'll hide. It's not my idea. It comes out of God's word. Or it's marked by the second option, Faith, purity, seeking God in all things, salvation in Christ Jesus, which makes your works about bringing glory to God in everything you do, whether you realize it or not, because they've been redeemed, they've been restored. 
by God himself, and he's using them. Because they're not based on you. They're based on the redemption that we already have in Christ Jesus. That's what they're based on. And that has already been accomplished. It's already done. And it's good. So God is taking us in our sinful weakness state, those empty desires we had, those shameful, lustful, deceitful, empty talk that we once had as, as unbelievers, and he's, and he's taking us right out of there, and he's moving us, and he's, and he's moving us out of that situation, and he's speaking into that pain, and he's dealing with those sins one at a time. I think that, and I think that's why it's important to note that when you become, sa- when you become saved, God doesn't just instantly make you completely sanctified because you wouldn't actually really see that process. And that wouldn't be necessarily a good thing. You need to see that work that God is doing. And you need to go with him. And he's going to go with you. And he's going to enter into it. He's going to enter into that pain. And that struggle. And the strife. And if you're anything like me, you want an easy button. You just want to say, boom, I want to be done. I want this to go well and I want to be done with it now. That's my struggle. Um, But that isn't going to happen. And don't try that because it will cause you anxiety like it does me. And you will have a panic attack. Because you can't get there instantly the way I want to be. I I want to be sanctified right now. I don't want to deal with all this. I want to get ahead. I want to move forward. And I want life to be easy. And I want to be able to just wave a wand and things happen. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is. Everyone has their own struggle, their own pain that they're dealing with. Their own anxieties, their own doubts, their own concerns, their own, you know, your own fears. But maybe that's not it. Maybe, maybe you think you've got it figured out. If you do, I'd like to know what you've done to figure it out. I, I really would. But feel comfortable to talk to other people. Feel comfortable to talk to Kyle and, and Caleb and anyone in this church. Feel comfortable to come talk to us because this is actually not a bad thing, this rebuke. Okay? Let's look at it that way. This is not a bad thing. This is for your good. So whatever it is, wherever... Whatever you find yourself in, I I assure you, there will be ways that the world is going to try to fill that emptiness, that void, that pain, that suffering, that anxiety, that fear. Whatever it is, there are ways that the world that you will find, if you look hard enough, there will be things out there that's going to entice you, it's going to draw you in, but those things, whatever it is, they are not going to ultimately satisfy. They're only going to temporarily fulfill some little, little tiny need that's not really getting to the, the heart of the problem. They're just going to satisfy you for a moment. Name anything, any struggle, any sin, any weakness, any ego, anything. Whatever it is you do to satisfy that thing, that thing will only last for a moment. And why do I say that? Well, because compare that to the ultimately eternal satisfying grace of God who is eternal and who has proven himself time and time again through the life, through the storms of life. You really can't heal those hurts or fill those voids the way God does. 
when he enters into us and he lives in and through us. And it's so satisfying. So what we want to do is we want to let God renew our works through coming to Christ, learning more about him, receiving the instruction and the rebuke and the information that we get here Sunday after Sunday. And wherever you, you, know, wherever you go, life transformation groups, community groups, man, dig into those opportunities. That's why they exist. That's why we have these things through this church. Use them. Use them to your advantage. Use them to your... It's, it's not a guilty pleasure. That's why they're there. And in this... Uh, renewal, stay right where you are in your life, okay? For the time being, your circumstances, your family that God has placed you in, the job that you're in, God is using those things as the means, as the place, as the location of his ministry through you, through through the circumstances in your life. Even if those things are very difficult, and I have, I have many examples of those through my life. Is I wanted to run away from some difficult situation because I, I didn't think God could use it. But give it time. It takes time. And he will use those situations. He will use those circumstances. And keep doing what you're doing unless it's blatant, obvious sin. Keep doing what you're doing. Day after day, faithfulness, boldness with the word when you have those opportunities. And God will use those. I, I hear these stories all the time from people. So this is why everything I've been saying, I think goes back to verse 3 where Paul says, at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted. I think that's important to realize. That's why the rebuke is so important. That's why it's God's grace to lead us so that we might be sound in faith and good works. Look forward to the many other messages that you're going to hear in the future about more of this, the things that Paul says about being zealous for good works and the fact that we're going to be heirs according to the hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus. So the gospel-centered rebuke is God's grace that we may be sound in faith and in good works. Let us pray. Uh, Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that you have not left us alone You are redeeming and restoring and renewing us moment by moment, day by day, little by little, the way that you see fit according to your purposes for your glory. I pray that you would use this church. I pray that you would use us individually and see that we're not insignificant, unuseful people, but that you died on a cross in a painful, horrible, uh, just unnecessary way, but for the express purpose that we would then be restored back to right relationship with you, God, with you. You would get the glory, that you would receive the glory from all the people that will be surrounding your throne one day, glorifying and praising your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.